Welcome back to the Cat Sounds Podcast. I am Brian McCauley, your master of ceremonies, as always. First things first, the Cat Sounds 24-hour voicemail hotline at 949-484-9724. You can always leave your comments there or text them to it. I've been off for three weeks, and I want to thank everyone who wrote and called asking why. I was on a little vacay. Where did I go? Nowhere. I was just concerned with other things, and I think our mid-season finale, the episode where I name-dropped James Vanderbeek, was a great note to go out on for a little bit, but we are back, uh, as are you. Where to begin? Well, my motto's always been bad news first, and the bad news is the coronavirus still, still here in uh, August. As we stand at the precipice of August, today is August 1st of 2020, where I'm recording this. Uh, So in California, we're averaging about 10,000 new cases every day, um, between 150 and 200 deaths on a daily basis here in the Golden State. Where I live in Orange County, cases were mostly flat from about late April up through the middle of June, then an abrupt shift. There are many reasons why this happened. Part of it was the move toward reopening. There were lots of precautions taken about the reopening, but as many have warned, no environment is zero risk. No activity is zero risk. Mask, no mask, wash your hands, whatever. Um, and with a million variables in between about how correctly one observes those precautions. So we knew to some degree this was inevitable, that the caseload would rise when the reopening began, but it's been a disaster. Now that's part of it, another part of it... Thousands packed into Cadman Plaza this afternoon, all joined together to remember George Floyd and call for justice. And part of it was that thousands of people spent the month of June congregating in close proximity to one another with minimal precaution as protests sprang up all over the country. And there was a noticeable lack of public outrage from a certain kind of person who is prone to publicly expressing outrage over all sorts of different things. Um, Those people were oddly quiet in the face of the demonstrations that we saw, I suspect because they thought pointing out the risk of the coronavirus would be conflated with opposition to the political aims of the people demonstrating. Um, So they kind of took the position that these were somehow safe activities because of the nobility of that cause. Uh, If you believe that, I've got a bridge in New York to sell you. And because of the coronavirus real estate market, I'm willing to slash the price. I'm not judging anybody for whatever behavior they did or didn't engage in. I'm just saying that having any belief that protests would somehow not spread this disease is without a foundation in reason. We all know outdoor activities are more safe than indoor ones. Um, At this point, it looks like much more safe. Many of us believe sunlight is more effective than a lack thereof. But if you are mere inches 
hardly six feet from thousands of other people screaming and shouting and often touching. I don't think it matters. Uh, This is high risk behavior. But those protests were mostly composed of young people, a demographic who tend not to suffer coronavirus complications. So at face value, they're safer than a lot of um, other groups would be in the same situation. Of course, those young people do not live on Young People Island, a nation exclusively comprised of only the youth and surrounded by water on all sides. There is no such place. Um, If you believe that, I can help you get there by selling you a bridge, which you could use to get to Young People Island, I guess. Now, how many people did those events spread the virus to? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe just a few. Um, Perhaps very few, uh, but one. I would say at least someone. Someone got the virus who would not have in a causal chain of events that resulted from someone protesting. That much is sure. Um, And someone has or will die at the end of that causal chain. And what's more, you know, a much, much larger group of people watched those things on TV and granted themselves certain permissions that they had not before during the quarantine. You know, um, there's a certain kind of person who was at home doing their best with the quarantine and social distancing and whatever else, you know, who already was feeling the coronavirus quarantine fatigue by June, uh, which I think we all were. And I think which we all know contributed, at least in some part, um, to the numbers we saw in the protest movement. But there was a kind of person just observing it who then changed their behavior based on what they saw, you know, based on the fact that they saw thousands of people flaunting those guidelines um, without consequence. I, I don't know how you can rationally deny that that, that that would be a consequence of all of this happening. Um, again, maybe it's just someone or a few someones, but probably not fewer then you would put at risk or I would put at risk if we were to disregard the current restrictions today and go do something that we wanted to do or that we believed was worth doing. Now said on this podcast before, I oppose racism, including systematic racism, and I'm very critical of police abuses, which I described in detail several episodes back. Um, That's available in the back issues if you want to go listen to it. Should be in your feed. But what is the measure of that opposition? Do I oppose it enough that I would put myself at risk for contracting the coronavirus merely to voice that discontent within our system as it exists? Not to cast a vote, mind you, not to knock on doors to convince a voter of some change that I seek, but just to generally do some marching and to engage in chants and hold signs and so on and so forth for the news to cover. Would I would I do that? No, I would not. Um, in my calculus of coronavirus risk, that does not appeal to me at this moment in our country's history. I, I don't see that as a productive use of my time. I don't see that as a productive risk environment to put myself or somebody else who I might come in contact with thereafter in. Um, that's my feeling. That was my feeling about the wackadoo anti-lockdown protests which was not a movement that, that I support politically 
And it's my feeling about the social justice protests. Uh, the main distinction is hardly anyone protested in those crazy anti-lockdown protests, whereas many, many thousands of people did in the George Floyd protests. Um, nevertheless, I will say, in the anti-lockdown protests, it was enough people that, like I said, um, you can bet somebody got it. Somebody got the coronavirus who would not have otherwise as some link in some chain stemming from those protests. Uh, I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you this happened. The odds that it didn't happen would be infinitesimal uh, with the kind of environment that we're dealing with right now. Somebody, someone, someone got sick. I'll tell you one more anecdote and then I will shut up about this. Congressman John Lewis died this week. Um, he was certainly somebody who knew about risk. He risked his own life to advance the cause of civil rights. And for that, he is a hero. He was brutally beaten in the Jim Crow era South for the work he did. And so this week, Congressman Lewis was laid to rest. There was a very moving service, which I watched on TV. And I don't say that with any levity. I, I genuinely was. I was moved. To, to see this, uh, he was honored by no less than three living U.S. presidents, among many others. John always kept walking to reach the beloved community. We live in a better and nobler country today because of John Lewis. You want to honor John? Let's honor him by revitalizing the law that he was willing to die for. I watched this from my home where I am quarantining, and I was moved. But later, I went on Twitter, <laughs> which is not how a good story begins. But anyway, I went on Twitter, and I saw a tweet. I don't know if it was true. You know, people can say whatever they want online. But this person was tweeting a picture of the packed church at John Lewis's funeral, and they were saying something along the lines of, it's okay that my father's funeral is limited to 10 people tomorrow. I understand. Um, that kind of knocked the wind out of me to see that. Uh, you know, I hadn't even thought of it. I watched the service. I didn't even think about it. Um, I didn't even think, you know, because uh, I've, I've internalized at this point the idea that um, it's like we're existing in, uh, two alternate universes, one of which is where we have the coronavirus and the other of which is where we see this tremendous groundswell uh, of a movement. You know, that that's what you would think when you watch TV, you know, and they say coverage is different on different channels. And that that's very true. But even within the same network, you know, um, all the coverage of pro both peaceful protests and violent uh, rioting in Portland for the last few weeks. I haven't heard anyone mention the coronavirus. You know, I've, I've heard, I, I've watched cable news, you know, I've tuned into that 8 p.m. Eastern hour um, on all the big cable news channels and seen uh, segments about both of these things, but I haven't seen them overlap. And I find that odd, I, genuinely. I think that's very weird. But like I said, uh, this guy's tweet, that I saw, it could be bullshit, but it, does, it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's bullshit, because we all know that regular people uh, can't have regular funerals right now. Many 
have been unable to have them at all. You know, um, I think some people are, are grateful that in some places they can have services which are limited to 10 people now. It certainly wasn't that way. A lot of places, even very recently, um, many have been unable to say goodbye to their loved ones in person at all, even if they were willing to accept the risk. And you can't really argue with that logic. There is no social justice cause in the world that will make it untrue that as a society, we are currently saying people like John Lewis are special and regular people are not. As true as that is. Uh, we all know that class and power stratifications exist in this and all countries. But the almost unbelievable insanity is that we're being asked to accept right now is that somehow a highly transmissible virus somehow observes these social boundaries. As, as though the, the, the virus the, the virus would respect the congressman's funeral and choose not to spread within its confines. And uh, there's no possible world where that's the case. That is, that is absurd. That, that is a preposterous notion. And once more, if you believe that, I have a bridge that you might be very interested in. But that bridge is shrinking and pretty soon it's going to disappear underneath all of us. And we're all going to plummet into the ocean of tragic absurdity that American life has become in the year 2020. I don't know if that can be prevented at this point. A lot of people object to the same behavior that I am saying is objectionable here. Unfortunately, many of them are fucking batshit crazy and believe that while the coronavirus is not real, QAnon is, and that Tom Hanks is the ringleader of an international conspiracy in every variation of these ideas in between. Uh, I considered doing a segment on the QAnon conspiracy for the show this week, and I decided it was just too weird for me. Uh, I couldn't get through one of those videos. You may hear a version of it in the near future. There may be something worth retaining, but it was a little too crazy for me. Uh, as a person who sometimes finds conspiracy theories interesting, um, I was quite put off by this one. Uh, I don't believe in them. You know, I, I don't believe in any conspiracy theories. I do find them interesting as ideas sometimes, but this was too crazy. Too crazy. Uh, now, the Republicans in Congress, the congressional Republicans are acting like the class clown in the chamber and refusing to wear their masks. They are clowns. Of course, Texas Representative Louis Gohmert was this week diagnosed with the coronavirus at 66 years old. I honestly do hope he's okay. Because I don't want anyone to suffer the worst consequences of the coronavirus. I really don't. Unfortunately, longtime GOP member Herman Cain, known for his 999 plan when he ran for president in 2012, was not fortunate. He died this week of the virus at age 74, just weeks after attending Trump's Tulsa campaign rally on June 20th. Did he contract the virus there? We don't know. Um, it's like a lot of the protests. We really don't know. We really can't say. Uh, but we do know that like the protests, that that event entailed risk. Greater risk than just staying in your fucking house. Like so many of us are really desperately trying to do right now. Our hardest. Trying our hardest to stay at home. But like I said, 
People in power in both parties in this country for different reasons think they do not need to observe the public health guidance to the letter right now. Uh, They're not setting a great example. And we have August, September, and October for voters to observe this phenomenon continuing as schools in most places look like they aren't going to open and the lives of parents of young children seem poised to get extremely complicated. So my point is, I have no idea what people will be talking about by the time the election is held on November 3rd, but I think it's premature to assume we know what the outcome of the election is going to be now. I think there could be surprises at any level. There usually are in in an election year, but we will wait and see. Fuck that. Fuck all of that negativity. Fuck all of that negative stuff. Let's now vanish... as we so oft do on the Cat Sounds podcast, into the comforting arms of the past. Want to do a movie review. Another one. From director Robert Altman comes a story of Hollywood. I got a writer in here who's got a pitch I think you ought to hear. I think it's hot. We open outside San Quentin. The Graduate. Part two. And Mrs. Robinson had a stroke, so she can't talk. It's going to be funny? Yeah, it'll be funny. Griffin Mill is a hotshot studio executive. Yes. Angelica, hey. Griffin Mill. Oh, hi. Good to see you. Malcolm McDowell. Hi, how are you? Hi, Bert. Good oh, to hi, see you. Good to see you. He's heard every pitch. That's exactly right. It's Out of Africa meets Pretty Woman. He knows all the angles. We're going to have to have a little sex in this, Mr. Oh, yeah, sure, of course. We'll get it. Slowly, pushes her panties down to her knees. And all the players. We're the stars. No stars. No stars. Bruce Willis. I want Bruce Willis. Not Bruce Willis. No Schwarzenegger. Junior Robbins. Now he's about to star. How did this get here? They're coming from a writer. Hello, is David Kane there, please? This is. This is Griffin Mill. Who's a dead man? In his most unforgettable story yet. Stop all the postcards. I don't write postcards. I write This is a tough story. Tragedy. Not unlike Ghost meets Manchurian Candidate. The trouble is something you have to know. If you went to Pasadena with intent to kill, you could go to the gas chamber. It's not a movie. I'd like you to come down to the station. I would hate to get the wrong person arrested. Oh, please. This is Pasadena. We do not arrest the wrong person. That's L.A. It's his life. Are you seeing someone else? You took her to a party, Griffin, with several hundred of my best friends. Do places like this really exist? Only in movies. Robert Altman's The Player. Can we talk about something other than Hollywood for a change? Yes. We're educated yeah. people. Sure. Sure. <laughs> the Player is a 1992 Robert Altman film starring Tim Robbins as a movie business executive fighting to keep his position while beset from all sides, not least of all, by the possibility he'll be caught for a terrible crime he has committed. Wikipedia calls it a satirical black comedy, and I don't think that's wrong. It's very funny, in a particularly biting way. And unlike most comedies from 1992, it's still funny now when you watch it, at least for me. These movies come around from time to time, these satires of Hollywood. They've existed almost from the beginning of the medium. 
to me, they often fail. They are often shitty. A good example of a bad example is 2002's Simone. That was the one with Al Pacino and the computer-generated actress. Victor Taransky has discovered the perfect actress. Simone appears only when I want her to appear. That's a movie I spent like 20,000 words condemning this year on my website. It was bad. It was bad. It was poorly executed camp. Such movies often are. And even many of the good ones are just superbly executed camp. The player is something else. Like I said, it is satirical, but it has a really dark underside. There are jokes in this movie. There are things which you will laugh at, but the movie doesn't play the serious parts for comedy. When an abrupt killing happens in this movie, it is played as literal. So what's the story? 25 words or less. Okay. Movie exec calls writer. Writer's girlfriend says he's at the movies. Exec goes to the movies, meets writer, drinks with writer. Writer gets conked and dies in four inches of dirty water. Movie exec is in deep shit. The world this movie tackles is much like that scene in 1994's Swimming with Sharks with Kevin Spacey and Frank Whaley, if you've ever seen that movie. It's uh, the cruel world of movie development at the time. Uh, it is the way-too-loud, double-breasted suit world where cocky, brash execs style themselves as the masters of the universe. And that's what this movie captures really, really well. I didn't live in L.A. at this time, but by the time I got there in the mid-2000s, you could really smell the stink of this all over it. Um... The ubiquity of valet parking is perhaps unlike any other American city in Los Angeles. There are other cities like L.A., but within them, people usually don't drive. And on that note, here's a great character moment. Early in this movie, Robin's character, Griffin Mill, retrieves his ahead-of-his-time Range Rover from a valet. Uh, and he doesn't even thank the guy. He doesn't even smile at him. He doesn't even look at him, but he does tip him. And what he's saying with this brief moment is that he is someone powerful. He's not generous. He's not even grudgingly generous with the tip like so many ordinary people are. He's paying a small fee in order to showcase his own power. And this is the relationship Griffin Mill has with the world he lives in. It's a series of events that measure and demonstrate his own power. This theme plays at all corners of this movie. Uh, the stark, inciting incident of violence, which will haunt him for the rest of the running time, occurs because his power is challenged. It's mocked, even. And this movie is full of great lines, great cameos, and mostly to watch the player today, it reads as a sort of great historical document. Now, the fictional world of movie drama never presents things as strictly real. Um, this is not cinema verite. It's not a documentary. And actually, documentaries are not even documentaries, strictly speaking. They're all, there's always some curated version of the real world when you're watching a movie. 
Um, but this movie curates 1992 show business really well. Uh, the way people dress, the concerns they have. It's comical now. Some of the styles in this movie, particularly a Bill Cosby-esque sweater worn by Jeff Goldblum in a brief cameo where he plays himself. Uh, there's plenty of other stuff, too. This is a movie that reminds us that Whoopi Goldberg was once a pretty serious actor. Um, so do you have a break in the case? Well, what makes you say that? Oh. Why else would you bring me here? Why else indeed? <laughs> Paul? Paul, why have you brought Mr. Miller in here today? To look at some pictures. Willa? Pictures? Listen, could you, if you remember, what were you uh, wearing that night? I was wearing a double-breasted suit, I believe. Oh, it's all right. It's Mr. Miller, you're so jumpy. <laughs> Sit down. I'll, I'll get well, it. No, no, that's what she's here for. It's all right. Have a seat. Sorry. No problem. And the whole thing plays as very detached, which I think serves it. Uh, the camera takes the action from pretty far away, which isn't uncommon for a Robert Altman movie. I imagine it's extremely difficult to mic actors for sound with some of the shots he insisted on getting. Uh, but they really work. They really work very well here. Nobody is really that attached to anybody else. Uh, they're attached to themselves in this movie. It's a cynical, selfish world. And I can only imagine screenwriter Michael Tolkien, whose book the film is based on, drew inspiration from some nasty personal experiences. Uh, it's just too well executed to be the product of just informed speculation. He wrote a sequel, at least in book form, and it's on my list. I want to check it out. That book was published in 2006 when Hollywood had already begun to change sharply from Griffin Mill's world. This movie posits that film executives sit around teasing out shitty ideas for movies and where they might happen upon a good one, they ultimately destroy it in pursuit of commercialism. And that's not the worst part. The worst part is the people it chews up and spits out, like the character of Bonnie in this movie. And Hollywood is a lot different than that today. Um, it's, it is this world, but utterly bloodless. The ideas start out as bad, <laughs> somewhere far off, in a different form, so that they're all existing IP by the time they reach anyone's desk in Hollywood, early in the player, Griffin meets with Martin Scorsese uh, playing himself who gives him a truly terrible pitch, but at least it's original. It, you know, it's, it's something original today. I doubt many meetings like that even occur. Um, it's all about licensing superheroes and YA literature to get franchises started. And I think that's terrible. <laughs> um, I prefer the crass commercialism of 20 or 30 years ago to the crasser commercialism of now is what I would say. Um, I understand it, but I, I, I prefer it, you know, uh, call it nostalgia purely. Now, if you want to read a book and I get it, nobody does, but you can get this one on audiobook if you really want to, if you want to read a book about what's changed in Hollywood, uh, over the past two decades, the kind of changes we're talking about here. Let me recommend to you The Big Picture by Ben Fritz. Uh, it was published in 2018. It covers a lot of this stuff 
And it's an informative read if you're curious why movies have gotten so repetitive and boring. That's The Big Picture by Ben Fritz. He's the West Coast Bureau Chief for Wall Street Journal. And with that being modern Hollywood, uh, this movie really stands up, like I said, as a historical document of a bygone era. It's a great film. There There are lots of reasons to watch it, but as time passes, it gets more and more about the slice of 1992 that can be seen here. Uh, that's the player. You can see it on HBO Max. Oh, I thought I might get through a whole episode without mentioning HBO Max. I didn't. That's where you want to go if you want to see it. Um, that's our show for this week. Uh, I'm sorry if it was disappointing. <laughs> I'm disappointed by it too. If it makes you feel any better. Uh, remember, you can always call the Cat Sounds 24-hour voice and text mail hotline at 949-484-9724. Our theme music is Matza by Frog Belly and Symphony. Please check them out on Bandcamp or at frogbellyandsymphony.com. I'll be back next week. I'll probably do that conspiracy thing because I just have too many notes on it uh, that have to go somewhere. Uh, I hope you're having a good summer. Be safe. Take care of yourself. And I'll see you then.